Good morning. Just want to soak it in a little bit. Because I'm not going to be able to do this pretty quick. Good to, good, really good to be with you today. We're going to continue a series of messages on love. And um, we've been studying the word church. And when the Apostle Paul looked at churches, he always evaluated them according to their size, how big they were in their love, faith, in their hope, and their love. Not the number of people coming. About how much love do they have? How much faith do they have? How much hope do they have? That's how he evaluated them. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, but it's at the beginning of almost all the letters he wrote. He mentions those three things, or he skips one because they're lacking in that area. And we need to evaluate ourselves the same way. So we've gone through faith and hope, and now we're talking about love. And if you remember, last week preached a sermon about how love is about commitment. I get that idea from a scholar who did this work he gave to me one time before he even made it into a book, a ream of papers this thick, and said, here, read this. This is a word study about love. And I discovered love in all kinds of different language has a synonym in the English language, which is the word commitment. He says, if you're not willing to commit, you can't say you really love, which is why we do wedding vows, right? And we do commitments to one another and give rings because love results in commitment. It's hard to love and not be committed to one another. In fact, this guy would say, you don't really love if you're not willing to commit. Commitment is what love's all about. Wow, that helped me a lot. And though, yeah, if you remember last week then, I tried to use a visual aid because I like using visual aids. I'm kind of a visual learner. And the visual aid I came up with was concrete. You know, you take cement and water and you mix in some stones like you do it in a cement mixer or you do it in a cement truck or you do it in a bucket and it's soon going to set and what you have to do is pour it. We talked about not leaving it in your bucket. That would be like, yeah, I'm cemented to me. <laughs> the one I only one I really love is me. And I said, don't waste your life just being committed to you. Your agenda, your likes, your dislikes. The Bible screams that to us. The Bible tells us that's what God's like. He doesn't just love himself. He pours out his love toward us. For God so loved the world, he gave his only son. Now that's what it's all about. The gospel message, the Bible message is about love. So we started processing that and thinking through that. And I want to continue that today because we came up to the conclusion of, well, how do you do this? And so I got four points of commitments you can make in learning how to really love somebody. I'd like to pray with you about it before we start. Bow with me in prayer. Lord, we come before you today very excited that we can look into your word because we need it so bad. In our culture, in our misunderstandings, in our just human nature, we tend to look at this idea of love in a very sometimes warped, even self-absorbed way and miss the whole point of what it really means to love and experience love. So many times we waste much of our life not having love, not experiencing love, not giving love because we misunderstand what it is and how to do it. So today I'm asking for everyone here and everybody listening online to be able to experience love and to know the love we, you, we are promised in Scripture if we will make that commitment. Help us do it, Lord. We look to you right now as we study your word. Teach us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. 
When we love someone, we often say we give our heart to them. But as you know, that can be difficult. Like in marriage, right? Marriage can be difficult. You even say a vow in front of a pastor before God, making a covenant commitment to somebody. But then, and how many of those have I done? Hundreds, it seems like. But then maybe a few months or even years later, they're in my office because they're really having difficulty. It's difficult to stay committed, live committed. But that's what love does. And so we're trying to work that through. Parent-child relationships, whether you're the child or the parent, it can be difficult, can't it? Very difficult. The church, sometimes there's someone who just, uh, you you don't like them. They rub you the wrong way. It's difficult. Relatives, in-laws, friends, even enemies. It becomes very difficult to love. You know, in the scriptures, God says you can do it. We're going to read some scriptures today to tell about love and how we're supposed to be able to do it. And over and over again, it's telling us you can do it. You can do it. But we go, oh, no, I can't. I'm sorry. I just can't do it. And he goes, yes, you can. Like, I think of a couple passages right off the top of my head, like 2 Corinthians 5, 17. It tells us that when we become a Christian, when we become born again, when we really put our faith and trust in Jesus as our Savior and Lord, guess what happens? You become a new creature in Christ. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Literally, new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Right? Isn't that what the Scripture says? It's talking about you and me, but we have a hard time identifying that because we keep limiting ourselves, thinking, well, I don't see it so much. It's not happening for me. Well, he says it's true of you. Or another one. Same author, Paul. He writes to the Philippian church, and he's talking about how he's learned to be content in every circumstance, how he's facing situations, difficult situations, good situations, bad situations. He says this, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we're thinking, no, I can't. It doesn't work. He says, yeah, you can. Do you realize when you say you can't, do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the Bible says you can. Basically, what you're saying is, I won't. Oh, because the Bible says you can. You're just making a decision on your own, but I won't. I'm too stubborn. I'm too selfish. I'm too arrogant. Whatever it be, I won't. The Bible says you can. The Bible says you're a new creation. But we often live in denial in a separate kind of identity, like we can identify ourselves by our likes, our dislikes, by our personality, by what we, 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 we feel or what we think, rather than accept the truth of what God says about who you are and what you can or can't do. Do you see the dilemma we're in? When I say love is complicated or difficult, the problem is often just you. You won't. Bible says you can. I remember one time meeting with Dr. Minnith and Dr. Mike or, uh, Myers, two clinical psychiatrists, and I had a, a class with them working in a psych ward, and that's what they said. They said, you know, the Bible says, and most of these people in my psych ward here are Christians, the Christian psychiatrist said, the Bible says they can And they're basically saying, no, I can't. And I'm saying, well, yes, you can. There's something in the way. You're holding on to a grudge. 
you're all upset about something in, in your life. You won't trust God for this or for that. Or you see, we went through all kinds of different things, but something's holding them back, and it's themselves. Because God says, I can do all things through Christ and strengthens me. But we're going, no, I can't. He said, yes, you can. And we're going to read passages today that all tell you, yeah, you can. You can love. You can. Even to the point of being obedient to God to love your enemies, even that, this dislikable person you have no feelings for at all. In fact, if you have any feelings, it's like hatred. And he says you can love them. How can you do this? He tells us through the scriptures. I want to show you that. Yeah, yeah, I have to admit, you have to admit, it is complicated. But God says we can. Um, I, how, how do we do this? this? Is what we're going to go into today because remember, I talked about last week, you read 1 Corinthians 13, which we studied all last week, remember? And 1 Corinthians, Corinthians 13 gives you this definition of love and we go, oh man, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Like, you know, I, I can't do it. Again, it's like we're standing in front of this huge snow-capped mountain and we look at it and we go, no way. I can't, I can't make it. I'm not going to be able to do that. We quit before we even start. And the Bible has 1 Corinthians 13, and several pastors are going to look at it today. All in the Bible, we'll go, well, you know, that's nice, but I, I, you know, I just can't do it. And the Bible says, God says, yes, you can. Quit telling yourself you can't, because I'm telling you you can through Christ in your life. I put down what's called the big idea. True love takes four commitments. What it's going to take, that word I used before of commitment, the similarity with that with love is undeniable. So what are you going to do? You're going to have to make some commitments. And I took them and I cut them into four commitments I see through the scriptures. And I put it in an acrostic, love, L-O-V-E. L stands for listen. You need to make a commitment to listen to others. You need to make O stands for overlook others' fault. V stands for value. Learn to see, commit to see value you in other people and then lastly express it learn to express it these are going to take commitments when you can make those commitments God says he'll work in your life and give you the strength to love way beyond yourself you know in Philippians 4 13 it says I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me I want you to think about that and come back to it at the end because God says you can you can and the only thing stopping you is, is, is you, will you or won't you? So let's, at, let's look at these one at a time. Number one, L. L stands for commit to listen to others. When I read this um, first point, I often think of the list of one another's in the New Testament. You know I refer to these a lot because the word elion in Greek is repeated over and over 40, 50 times in the New Testament. How we're supposed to care for one another, love one another. Look at, look at some of them just in the book of Romans. Listen to this. Be devoted to one another. Give preference to one another. Be of the same mind toward one another. Love one another. Let us not judge one another. Pursue the things which make for peace for the building up of one another. Be of the same mind with one another. Accept one another. Admonish one another. It goes on in Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians. Ephesians talks about serving one another, bearing one another's burdens, showing forbearance, speaking to one another, and some one another, one another, one another. What's the Bible trying to say? It's trying to say that without one another in your life and making commitments to one another, you're not going to grow. You're not going to hear God. You need more than just you and your Bible. Iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. 
meaning you're going to be quite dull without this. Love is really important here, and the first step for it is to love one another by listening to one another. In fact, I don't think you can do any of these without listening. Let's put it this way. Be devoted to one another, well, by listening. Give preference to one another by listening to them instead of just speaking your mind. Be of the same mind word one another. <laughs> How are you going to do that without listening? Love one another. Let us not judge one another. Well, you're going to have to listen to see their point of view. Pursue the things which make for peace for the building up of one another. How can you do that if you can't listen? Be of the same mind with one another. How are you going to do that if you can't listen? Accept one another. I could read them all. Listening is like step one in every one of them. You're going to have to be able to hear them. How do you do that when you disagree with them? How are you going to do that when you're angry with them? How are you going to do that when it just doesn't seem to make sense to you what they're saying? Anybody got an answer to that? The key again is the Lord. Look into the Lord. There's a passage I often think of. It's my favorite one another. It's in 1 John chapter 4. Look with me, if you will. 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Reads like this, beloved. That's what he's calling the church there. John is writing to them saying, dearly beloved or beloved, let us love one another for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. Notice the emphasis on God and love. In fact, I circled it in my, my Bible. Let's look at it this way. What, what if it re, re, read it like this? Since I'm saying the first step is to listen, let's read it that way. Let's change the word love to the word listen. Beloved, let us listen to one another. For listening is from God. And whoever listens has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not listen does not know God. Because God is listening. The whole reason you and I are told to listen to one another so many different times and in so many different ways, and it's assumed in all the one another's, is because God listens to us. We have a loving God who will actually listen to our prayers. And I remember writing a post about that this week for Facebook. I'm thinking, yeah, why in the world would God listen to you? He's God. What could you possibly tell him? Nothing. He knows everything. Well, then why does he want me to pray? Why would he listen to my prayers over and over and over and over again? Scriptures tell us that the prayers are like prayer, like incense to God. It, the prayers of the saints are, are beautiful fragrance to him. Why? Because he's a loving God. For God so loved the world, he wants to listen to your prayer of repentance, listen to you share your needs, listen to you make requests. He wants to listen to your heart. And when God listens to us, it frees us up to listen to others. Do you understand where I'm going here? Love is listening to others because God listens to you. So, so significant that you grab hold of this because it frees you up to be able to hear other people. It gives you such, uh, can I say, security instead of insecurity about who you are. <laughs> I mean it so clearly that if you're having trouble loving somebody, try praying for them. Bring them into your prayer life. Start talking to the Lord about them. Watch what happens. 
All of a sudden, you feel secure enough. All of a sudden, you're able to listen to somebody you couldn't listen to before. All of a sudden, you're caring for somebody you didn't feel any care for before because you've been praying for them. The key to being able to be a good listener is to be a good talker to the Lord. You tell the Lord about him. You tell the Lord about the conflict. You tell the Lord about the difficulty. You tell the Lord about your enemy, whatever it is. And you ask the Lord to work in their heart, their mind. And next thing you know, you're listening. It's the key to being a good listener is be a good talker to the Lord. A good prayer changes everything. I think that's what 1 John 4, 7 and 8 is trying to say. You can love others because God loves you. In fact, few verses later it says that we love him because he first loved us Donald Gray Barnhouse wrote a book and I was reading it this week he, he, maybe you don't know who he was he used to be the president the pastor of um, 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia a famous church and he was a famous pastor I mean, we're talking 70 80 years ago and Donald Gray Barnhouse um, traveled the world speaking and one time he's in Japan and he had an experience I wanted to read to you. I was reading it this week and it popped out at me because I thought it related well. He says, in the lobby of the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo, Japan, the girl at one of the airline desks spoke Chinese, Japanese, and English. She was obviously from a cultured background. I asked her if she happened to be a Christian. She replied, that she was a Buddhist. Further questions elicited the information that she had heard of Christ before and knew that there was a sacred book called the Bible, but she had never read it and knew nothing of the Christian truth. I then asked her a question. Do you love Buddha? She was startled and said, love? I I never thought about love in connection with religion which sounds odd to us as Christians, doesn't it? I said to her, do you know that in the whole world no God is truly loved except the Lord Jesus Christ? Other gods are hated or even feared. You have statues of fierce monsters to guard the gates of your temples. And the people stand at a distance and and try to awaken their gods by clapping their hands. They burn incense and offer sacrifices to them as, as though they were gods who had to be appeased. But Jesus Christ actually claims to love us. He came to die for us, and those of us who truly know him have learned to love him in return. We love him because he first loved us, 1 John 4, 19. Mohammedans do not love Allah. Hindus do not love their gods, and neither do you love Buddha. But we love the Lord Jesus Christ because he died for us. Before leaving Japan, I arranged for a missionary to take a Bible to this young girl to show her how she might know the Christ of God and enter into his love. When you're having a hard time listening to another person, I suggest to you it's because you don't know the love of God. You need to get closer to the Lord. You need to start talking to the Lord about that person and about yourself. That's what's missing. When you come, become very secure about your love for God and his love for you is when you become a better listener. In your marriage, with your children, with the boss, with the people at work, you can listen a lot easier when you're feeling secure, when you're feeling threatened, or you're feeling abused by somebody else. You don't, you don't listen. 
It's in the security of God's love that we find the listening ability, which I boiled down to prayer. It really has a lot to do with your prayer life. Yeah, your listening life is connected to your prayer life intimately in your heart. It's the first thing we learn. The second commitment we learn we need to make is this. It stands for the word, I use the word O here, commit to overlook others' faults. Turn with me to the book of Proverbs. You have your Bible. It's Proverbs 17. Or on your phone or whatever, I'll just read it to you. Here's what it says. Whoever covers an offense, covers an offense seeks love. But he who repeats a matter separates close friends. <laughs> Sounds like Facebook. Or this one, chapter 19, verse 11. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is to his glory to overlook an offense. You'd be surprised how many passages are in the book of Proverbs or in the Bible telling you love covers a multitude of sin, overlooking offenses. And I'm just saying, that's why I mentioned Facebook. In our day and age, especially with social media, this is like unheard of. Nobody does this. And I'm so surprised preachers never mention it. It's in the Bible. Overlook, overlook, overlook. Oh, yeah, there's times, I'll talk about it in a minute, when you need to confront. But most often it says, no, love overlooks. We don't do that. We make much of their sin. We make much of their faults. We'll put it on Facebook, tell everybody. We, everybody's getting outed for everything, right? That's our culture we live in. And it's, it's supposed to be a, a tolerant culture, an accepting culture. Uh, that's a joke. It's such a joke. It's an unloving culture. Not willing to overlook anything of anyone. You and I as Christians are supposed to be those who overlook an offense, overlook a fault. It starts in your relationship with the Lord and overlooking faults in your life because he forgave you. It starts in your marriage, overlooking a fault of your spouse. It starts in your child and parent relationships, overlooking a fault, in your friendships, in your church. How easily offended we are nowadays. Oh, that's offensive to me. And you kind of want to say, yes, so. So are you to God. <laughs> yes, so. We're, on, we're this way, so quick to find an offense. And the Bible says, you're supposed to be loving them even if they have faults. You overlook them. Now, once in a while, there are things we need to confront. We're not supposed to overlook. I mean, Jesus didn't overlook everything from the Pharisees, did he? No, he identified it. Ken Sandy, a famous lawyer, Christian lawyer, wrote a book called Peacemakers. He defines it beautifully. If you'd like to know more, about, well, when am I supposed to confront? Well, when there's blatant sin and someone's attacking, that kind of a thing. It's a different kind of thing in certain situations. He helps it be clear. But even he, as a lawyer, says, you know, there's a place in Scripture where it's telling us over and over again, like, love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Overlook it. Yeah, all over the Bible. What am I supposed to do about that? Well, often, you know, you need to overlook. But when you just can't, something needs to be confronted. Here's how you do it. I don't have time to get into all that today. I'm just looking at the overlook side. 
Or I think of a book written by Dr. James Dobson, a famous psychologist, member focused on the family, used to be his ministry. And he wrote a book called Love Must Be Tough because he said there comes a time where the line is drawn. And you go, well, that's just out of bounds. You're, you've gone too far. I can't, I, I can't overlook that. That needs to be identified. Paul does that in Scripture. Jesus does that. I'm not saying that's wrong, but I'm saying we have totally thrown away the idea that, well, some things, in fact, a lot of things, you're supposed to just overlook. The question is, how do you do that? In the book of Ephesians, Paul is writing to a church of people just like this. In fact, several churches that would circulate this letter. And he says this, Ephesians 4, be angry. It's okay to be angry, but don't sin. Oh, you mean you can be angry without sin, but angry with sin? Yeah. He says, so be angry, but don't sin. Don't let the sun go down your anger. Don't hold a grudge against somebody, even for, for a day. And then he adds, don't give the devil a foothold. It's right after that. Read it, Ephesians 4, like 25, 26, 27, right in there. And then at the end of the chapter, he tells you how. He says, so here's what you need to do. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, Ephesians 4.32. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ forgave you. Kindness, I think we all know about. Tender-heartedness literally means try and see it from their point of view. Okay, then you make a commitment to it. Forgive them. Well, why would I commit to forgive somebody who wronged me? Why would I not hold a grudge against them for the rest of my life? I mean, look what they did. Why would I forgive them? Just as God in Christ forgave you. Did you deserve it? No, not at all. The judgment for your sins should send you straight to hell when you die. But God's letting you off the hook. Why? Just as God in Christ forgave you on the cross. The blood was shed for you. His pain was the pain you're supposed to get. He is literally the substitute for all the judgment of God that's supposed to come upon your head. For all the lies, all the cheating, all the stealing, all the selfishness, all the pride, all the whatever sin. He let you off. So you're supposed to let others off. He says, just like that. You're looking to Jesus saying, well, he sure cut me a break. I can't cut him a break or her a break. Come on. Who are you? Who do you think you are? Somehow self-righteous, justifying yourself. You have no justice on your side. Only guilt. And Jesus took and let you off. Wow. That's how we're supposed to be able to come to this place of overlooking someone's fault, just as God and Christ forgave you. You know, looking at other people sometimes causes you to have offense. And I remember when I first got married, I was trying to think through, um, how am I supposed to do this love thing? Over and over again, it's so daily, right? And so I started making observations of people and without them even knowing it, like my own mom and dad. Married, you know, 20, 30, 40 years kind of thing, and you're like, how are they doing it? Well, quite obviously. I mean, you saw the same thing probably with your mom and dad. Not like they were perfect. Not like they didn't have faults. And you start thinking to yourself as a young 20-something-year-old just getting married, like, well, somebody's doing a lot of overlooking here because I see some things in dad that I'm sure mom sees, or I see some things in mom I'm sure dad sees. Somebody's doing some overlooking here. And then I get married to this girl. Her dad's a pastor. 
he ended up becoming the president of a denomination, a very righteous, holy man, right? And he's married to this wonderful woman, my mother-in-law. I'll tell you more about her later. And I'm thinking, well, well, they got it together. And then I start living with them a while, you know, doing, and realize, woo, yeah, there's some things could be offensive about him and some things she's doing that. And I start realizing, somebody's doing some overlooking here, aren't they? They're just letting it slide. And believe it or not, even in this church, I've been here 40 years. You think I'm not paying attention? You think I don't see a few faults in some people's marriage or their lives and thinking, whoo, I don't know if I'd want to live with her or I don't know if I want to live with him. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, boy, there's some overlooking going on here. Commitment to overlook. I remember one old couple, they'd both gone to heaven. Boy, she could be tough. Boy, he could be tougher. But to see them in their marriage, guys, I'll tell you, I almost cried. It was beautiful. She just let him off the hook. He just let her off the hook. They overlooked. Your marriage is doomed if you won't do this. I'm telling you, you're done already. They come in my office. She's on this side of the couch. He's on this side of the couch. And what do they do? He does this. She does that. And like, I got no hope until finally somebody says, I'm going to forgive anyway. I remember one guy telling me, he's going on and on about his wife. And I even said to him, I said, well, yeah, I noticed she is kind of, he goes, hey, I love her. <laughs> like he's confronting me. <laughs> okay, okay. That's what I was trying to get to. If I talk like that, you won't let me. But That's right, you love her anyway. You love him anyway. Yes, there might be things. You might need to go to counseling. There might be things that need to be confronted in him or confronted in her. But for a lot of it, it's just a daily saying, Lord, you let me off the Lord hook. Lord, you forgave me just as God in Christ forgave me and you're asking me to do the same here. Yeah. That's what love looks like. It's a commitment to overlook an offense until it hits the wall and something I can't overlook anymore. Okay, now let's confront and deal with it. Fine, fine. Yeah, that's in Scripture too. But I'm telling you, we've always skipped first one. I mean, first, step one, which is overlook. Well, thirdly, V stands for value, which means commit to value others. A very important aspect of love. Okay, I'm going to listen. I want to commit to listening. So I'm going to commit to seeing God and praying through things with God. Secondly, I'm going to come to the place where I overlook others' faults. Oh, wow, that's a big one. Why? Well, God let me off the hook. I can let them off the hook. Okay. Thirdly, commit to value others. And I think of Jesus' statement. Turn with me to the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 5, the great Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says something that just blows his blows your mind. He says this. It blew the mind of the original listeners. He said, well, you heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Whoa. So that you may be sons of your father who is in heaven. You're going to look like God, like God's son. For he makes his son rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, well, what reward do you, uh, what, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect. He's saying maturing, growing, as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
To become like God then means that you love everyone, even your enemies, he's saying. And did you notice the keys in verse 45? Well, why would I do this? Well, for he makes the sun rise on the evil and on the good and, and, the, and, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. The Bible says, for God so loves the world. The haters and the lovers. The nice and the not so nice the good and the bad. He sends, his point is, he sends rain on both of them. He puts sunshine on both of them. Do you see what he's saying? The logic of Jesus here is, well, if God loves them enough to give them some rain and God loves them enough to give them some sunshine, what's your problem? Who are you? You're like better than God? You're making your own judgment and you have no right to judge because you're not God? But God loves them. Why can't you? Well, we have no commitment there. Our commitment is less than that because we don't see the value. Do you get it? We see them as valueless. They're just a problem. They're not important. Wow, who are you to say such a thing as what Jesus is trying to point out there? You've somehow raised yourself up as, a, as God. And when God says he loves them, you go, well, I'm glad you do because I don't. Like, what? God says you can be like him when you love even the sinner, which is what God says when he says, for God so loved the world, he gave his only son that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life. It's like God saying he loves them. Something needs to change inside of us. Something self-righteous argument needs to change inside of us. Something inside of us needs to humble ourselves and say, okay, Lord, put the love there. Give me the love for this person this difficult child, this difficult situation, this person that's against me, whatever it be. Lord, I need love, my enemies, and I need it from you. That's the whole point Jesus is trying to make is that none of us can do this unless God gives us the grace. Jesus died for sinners because he saw value in sinners, and you're one of them. And they're one of them. So there's a real sense in which you're no better you're really no better than anyone else. In God's eyes, we're all sinners. And Jesus came to die for all of us. Isn't it significant when someone shows value to you? Can you ever feel that? Have you ever experienced that growing up? Someone values you? Even maybe more than you value you? Huge loving thing, isn't it? Huge. I remember when I was a little guy, uh, especially my first few years of school, I had dyslexia. At least that's what my third grade teacher, my mom, concluded. No one had been really diagnosed as that. Not many people was a new diagnosis. Because I had problems reading, and I twisted numbers and words around all the time in my head. And I had a lot of problems growing up. And, but my mother was the only one that really believed, oh, honey, you're not stupid. You, you can do this. Oh, mom, it's just, I can't, I can't do it. I'm trying. I get so embarrassed in school when they call me to read and I just stumble over the words. I'm like in tears. You know, you can just see me at the kitchen table and mom's like, it's okay, honey, you're not stupid. You can do this. I think my dad thought I was just stupid, but my mom, <laughs> my mom, my mom saw value in me. Or I remember even going in, and finally, you know, I became a Christian at 18 years old. I had terrible grades in high school and stuff because I was such a joker, and, you know, and it wasn't working for me, so I'm just playing more than studying. And um, so I wanna, now I'm a Christian. I want to go to college, and like, 
oh, that's a joke. This guy's not college material. And this professor named Joe Tewinkle at the school I went to, he took me on, I think kind of like a project, showing me value and helping me learn to study and keep at it and trying to read. But I mean, I started out getting C's if I was lucky. And then the B's, next thing you know, I graduated straight A's, you know, because that was a victory of God. It was like, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I was experiencing it. There are so many stories like that in my life. Young in ministry, and there's a man named Ken Churchill took me under his wing, a pastor. Or I could talk about Gene Getz or my father-in-law, Paul Bubna. Man, he would read, encourage me to read different books, talk with me about things. I was a young pastor. He was like my major mentor or John Soper or Richard Bush. Probably the most. I mean, not probably. The most person in my life who's ever shown me value is clearly my wife. She was here in the last service, so I had everybody applaud for her, but she's not here on this one. But wow. Is that true with your spouse? They show you value by listening to you. They show you value by overlooking faults. They show you value by what? It's right here. That's what it means to show value. And I don't know how you could possibly love somebody without showing value to them, expressing it to them, helping them understand. They'll know it. What did Jesus say? They'll know you by your, your love. Your fruit will bear witness of where your heart's really at. This is significant for you and I to make a commitment to. I'm going to love people, whether it's my spouse or my child or someone else's child or someone that's even nasty or a child that's unruly. Love them. Show them value. They're made in the very image of God. You're no better, no worse than them. All of us are flat plain sinners saved by the righteousness of Christ, not our own. The elders of this church, boy, I've had some great, great elders in this church. For 40 years now, you know, I've had several elder boards. I started out, they're all older than me. Then they all got my, now they're all younger than me. We call them elders. What does that make me? (laughs) The older. But Wow, talk about guys that would help me, encourage me, show value in me, believe in me, help me, confront me, admonish me. This is so important. Do you do this with your children? Do you do this with the children of this church, other kids, parents, and people? Do you show value? Really, really, really significant. This is what it means to love. Or I even think of the people at church, like you. Sometimes I wonder, you come listen to me all the time? Aren't you kind of sick of listening to me like all these years? It's like, thank you for not being sick of listening, showing me some value. I know I don't have much to give you, but I've got the word of God. That's what I give you. That's all. But thank you for showing love to me by valuing me or my wife or my kids or our church or the other people. Don't you see? That's what love does. It shows value. You make a commitment to give part of yourself. We call it, I gave my heart to Jesus. I gave my heart to my wife or my husband. Giving your heart is what love is. It's giving. Remember, it's like concrete. Leave it in the bucket. It just hardens. Don't waste your life just being committed to you. That's not a loving life. Get out of the bucket. Pour it out. Thirdly, I mean fourthly, Commit to express love to others. 
Here's one of my favorites. 1 John 13. I mean, not 1 John. John, the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verses 34 and 35. Here's Jesus. Jesus sums it up. He says, listen, guys, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. There's a one another's, right? Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So he's just telling these guys, well, just do, just do what I've done. Because I've overlooked a lot of faults. I've listened to you guys when you just cornball stuff you're saying. And, 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 and I valued you, and I've shown value to you. And I, they didn't even know he was going to go die on the cross after this. And then he says, so you commit. You commit to love one another just like I've loved you, okay? And then he says this, by this all people will know. By this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The number one characteristic of a Christian is supposed to be how they love other Christians. How they love church. Do you even come to church enough to show the other people you love them? Do you tell them you love them? The Bible says that's going to be our major witness, how we love one another. People are supposed to look and go, wow, their commitment to one another is off the charts. How can I get in a group like that? There were people value each other so much. They even overlook faults. They literally, they really honestly listen to each other. And you know what? They express love. The Bible says over and over, I know it's COVID, but we're supposed to greet one another with a kiss even, a holy kiss. Maybe when COVID gets over, we can get back to that. I don't know. But what they're saying there is you need to be open to expressing it. Do you? Do you ever write a note? Do you ever say a word? Or is church just your private little thing? I'm telling you, that's wrong. I'm sorry to tell you that, but that's just Americanized lies. That's not Bible. We're supposed to be the place where, by this all people, his disciples by our love for one another. It doesn't say coming to church. It doesn't say just being in a small group. No, 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 no. Those are just activities. It's your heart. Giving your heart to somebody else through expression. I I read this and I think of one person comes to the top for me. I'm an, a bit of an unusual guy because I love my mother-in-law. I know most guys kind of tolerate their mother-in-law. I loved my mother-in-law. She's in heaven with Jesus now. But my mother-in-law was a gorgeous lady, about five foot ten, big lady, big tall lady, beautiful. And um, I remember the first time I met her, and she's just like happy to see me and wonderful to be with and friendly and all this kind of stuff. And then as I got to know her, she thinks she just thinks I'm the greatest thing in the world. She's telling, boy, your sermons are fantastic. Way to go. And she's bragging on me. And I'm going to school. And I remember I'm just learning how to study. And she's helping me learn that and caring for me and always hugging me and kissing me. Remember, I grew up in a Scandinavian background. I mean, to get a hug or a kiss, it's like, that never happens. You know, it's like, but... And she wasn't even Italian. But she just... Right. She was German. Tough, staunch German. I like, I, where did she get this from? The Lord. It was her relationship with the Lord that freed her up to express love so beautifully. And she gave that to my wife. My wife's so good at that. So I was so, like, in love with my mother-in-law that if she ever asked me to do anything, hey, could you move this couch over to here? Because, for the fourth time, by the way, like, yeah. Sure, Mom, whatever you want. It was so easy for me to give back. Isn't it easy to give back to somebody who expresses love to you? 
They're always telling you you're great. You're doing a good job. They love you. They kiss you. They hug you. They're like, you go, yeah, what do you want? What do you? And I, that's what I mean. I'm a little unusual. I'm like, yeah, whatever mom wants. That's what I want to do. Like, I'll do it. It wasn't anything too big. Yeah, that's the way church is supposed to be. That's church. People expressing love to one another. Valuing one another. Overlooking faults. Because, hey, come on. Let's be honest. Who in this room doesn't have some major faults? You do. So do I. And thank God for people like you that have overlooked my faults. And that you listen to me and I listen to you. That's key. This is what I'm saying. Love takes four commitments. You got to learn to listen. You got to learn to overlook. You got to learn to value. And you got to learn to express. And if you don't have those down yet, pray to God. Say, God, teach me how to do this. I need this in my marriage. I need it with my kids. I need it with my relatives. I need it with my enemies. This is how I be a Christian. If I can't make these commitments, I haven't even started. This is, this is the life I'm supposed to live. And it's a beautiful life. It's what the Bible calls the abundant life. But it's going to take a commitment on your part. Now back to where we started. What does the Bible say? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You say you can't. He says you can. And he says all you're saying is you won't. Because I say you can do it. It's just a matter of saying, okay, Lord, I'm committing to it. Give me the strength. Give me the grace to do it. He will. He says he will. So I'm going to have the worship team come out, and they're going to sing a song for you, and then I'm going to come back out, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper together. But before I do, let's pray. Bow your head. Lord, this is like so convicting. You know it, Lord. We fall so short of listening, of overlooking, of valuing, and expressing. I know I do. I just have to tell you, Lord, I'm so sorry. Can you say that, Lord? I'm so sorry. I get so twisted around. Our culture teaches us it's all about us, and it's not. It's all about you. So please forgive us. That's step one. Please forgive me, Lord. And now, as I take the Lord's Supper together, as we hear this song, help me be willing to love others just as you have loved me. In Jesus' name, amen.